um, for the last uh, three months, I think since the end of August, I've been going through the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse the Buddha gave, that is the source for the mindfulness meditation that we do here. And uh, it's taken us three months to get through it. And uh, uh, and last week basically was the last talk in that series. And, um, and it was very nice, very sweet for me. Um, a lot of people that I know, a lot of people from our Sangha here and connected directly or, you know, occasionally here, um, went off and sat the three-month retreat at IMS. Some, some went for the whole three months and some went for six weeks. And um, I guess it ended Thursday or Friday? Friday. Friday. And they're already showing up. They just can't get enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and it's very sweet to have... Um, you know, uh, I think it's about 80 people who sit that retreat. Is that right? Ninety-five. Ninety-five. Well, I kind of was counting how many people I knew, and I kind of figured it was about 10% of the group comes from our kind of our kind of wider Bay Area community that that I, either our community knows well because they sit with us, or they have sat with us, or I know them. So I feel this wave of these people who've been. You know, coming, sitting for six, six weeks, 12 weeks, coming back. And it's really lovely uh, to know people have done that. And then I was inspired the fact that while they were sitting off there in silence for, in the woods of Massachusetts, uh, I was talking about the Satipatthana Sutta week after week. And I thought that was kind of lovely. <laughs> so, so um, now when I talked about the Satipatthana Sutta all these weeks, um, Mostly I just talked. I don't think I gave much opportunities for questions. And um, it did occur to me that uh, some of you might have had questions about what I was saying during these last three months. <laughs> and uh, I, got a, I got a letter um, from someone um, some months ago. You know, the, some of these talks end up on the uh, web. You know, people can listen to them on the web. And someone said... Um, 22 minutes into the talk you gave on May 5th, <laughs> you said something that wasn't right. Let me tell you. <laughs> you know, I, 22, I, so I hope that none of you had that kind of memory. Three, three, in the beginning of September, you said, but uh, I thought it would be nice uh, to see if you have any questions uh, about the discourse and... Um, and also, but well, if that doesn't, uh, if you don't have any questions, then if you have questions about other things uh, around practice, I take it that people um, who come to a meditation practice like ours and who come and do it on a regular basis and come to sit with us on a regular basis, um, uh, that the meditation practice has uh, an importance to them. That coming here, the practice has, is important for them, and you don't do this because it's you know a casual thing. Usually, at least you don't keep it up. I think. And um, so perhaps there are some questions that come out of that sense of importance if it's not about the sutta itself. For those of you who haven't been here, the discourse um, covers four broad areas that we can develop our mindfulness, our presence, our presence of mind, our sense of being really attentive to what's happening in the present moment. And these four broad areas uh, are the body, which was, uh, there's five different, nine exercises having to do with the body, learning to develop mindfulness of the body. The second area has to do with the feelings that we have. And generally that's uh, explained as the feeling tone of our experience. 
though um, uh, it's probably more complicated than that, and probably more complicated than the way I described it. But um, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral aspect of our experience. The third is um, our mental states, our mental uh, states of consciousness that we have. Not not so much, you know, great altered states of consciousness exactly, but um, in uh, the mind when it's colored by anger then the consciousness is covered, colored by anger. So we say we have a consci- anger consciousness is there. If the mind is concentrated, then the, con- the consciousness is somehow, um, um, you know, uh, shaped or colored by, by concentration. So getting to know the state of, the, of your consciousness is part of the practice. And then the, f- the fourth one is uh, the realm of the dhammas, which is um, mostly has to do with the, the processes that come into play. Uh, as a person is either moving towards suffering or moving towards liberation. So getting a sense of some of these inner processes and how they work is a very important part of the practice. And all these are considered ways of developing mindfulness. Um, Some people focus on one area more than another, but it tends to be holographic in the sense that focusing on one tends to bring out the other. And, um, And they tend to all develop to some degree as we practice. Um... In modern America, American vipassana scenes, these, um, the understandings often given to these four foundations of mindfulness is that they describe our, the whole range of our human experience. And it's kind of like shorthand in saying, pay, pay attention to everything in your, in your empirical experience, the things you can actually see and feel and touch. And, um, and, um, and so the progression from the body to these inner processes is a progression that it goes towards just something very particular to becoming uh, quite inclusive of everything that we possibly would be aware of. Probably if you read the discourse carefully, uh, uh, or maybe not so carefully, uh, you, you don't get that message that it says to do that. What it does, it, it doesn't say, you know, pay attention to everything. It says, pay attention, pay, pay, pay attention. It's very important. Mindfulness is very important. But it says, um, it gives you particular areas to bring mindfulness to. And um, so then the question is, what's, what do we do about that discrepancy between how some of the modern teachers teach and how the text teaches? Um, maybe we don't care. Maybe both of them are, are wonderful. And, uh, but it's interesting to see the difference. Um, one one uh, argument that can be made is that the text is not focusing on everything that we can pay attention to, but rather focusing on those things which are most beneficial to focus on. If you want to develop, if you want to liberate yourself, and so it kind of narrows the field of experience a little bit, uh, because the whole field of experience is so large, and not everything you pay attention to is beneficial for, um, you know, is further leading onto liberation. So it says, um, you know, pay attention to these particular things. These are the most useful things to pay attention to. Um, so that's, that's an argument can be made that way. Um, Lately, I've been um, aware that um, among people who come and talk to me or people I hear talk about, about religion and spirituality, that there seems to be a very strong tendency towards um, either-or thinking. And I probably succumb to that all the time, too. That's um, either one way or the other. And I think that uh, uh, it's probably wiser, uh, probably more realistic or whatever, um, at least in, in terms of spirituality, to always be thinking uh, first or kind of bring on the perspective or consider things also through the perspective of maybe it's both and rather than either or. 
And so rather than, um, you know, one way is better than the other, maybe both are you know, useful ways. And we don't have to set them uh, opposed to each other. So I should stop so I can give you a chance <laughs> to ask questions. Do I need to remind you that you create good karma by asking questions? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you need karma or, 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 or answers? <laughs> Investigation and just thinking about something. Mm-hmm. I mean, between bare attention, focused attention, yeah. something that. Uh, well, you open the question up, not maybe too broad near the end, but if I, in the beginning, the difference between investigation and thinking. Investigation is an important aspect, um, and it appears explicitly in the seven factors of awakening, which is one of the, one of the instructions for the text. And um, and. Um, and again, I, I think sometimes there's a strong uh, tendency to um, problematize thinking in, in meditation circles. To think, thinking is wrong or you shouldn't think. If you're meditating, there should be no thinking going on. You should stop it or not pay attention to it. Or thinking, you might be thinking about things, but you know that you be aware of it, but thinking doesn't have any function, any value. So it's kind of you know, pushed aside or ignored for its value, for its benefits. And so the investigation then, in that kind of dichotomy, the investigation is one of, it's a non-discursive investigation. Um, so um, we're not using the mind to think about something to understand it better, but rather uh, developing our capacity to see it better, more carefully. So, um, you know, if, um, to, really, to really be able to describe what a sunset looks to, some, to someone, um, you don't usually look, take a quick look at the sunset and then close your eyes and try to think best, best description. Probably you'd want to kind of study the sunset for a while, look at it, and really take it in, in a non-discursive way, perhaps. I don't know if that was a good example, but there's a lot of situations in life where kind of a non-discursive um, sensing or experiencing what's going on gives us the biggest sense, the best sense of what's actually happening there. And, um, and so there's a lot of uh, powerful ways of experiencing our life non-discursively. And some people find it quite liberating or... or um, um, uh, delightful, that part of mindfulness practice, which is non-discursive. We spend so much of our time thinking about things uh, that it's such a relief to find another way of relating to our experience. For some people, it's quite a challenge to relate to their experience uh, without relating to it by their thinking. Because most people are relating to experience most of the time through their thoughts. We're thinking about things. We're experiencing things through the filter of our thoughts, our beliefs, our values, our opinions, um, our past experiences. And so, you know, it's relatively unusual that we kind of see something unmitigated by concepts and ideas. And so then some people really emphasize the value of doing that, of kind of dropping thoughts and dropping ideas, just seeing things as they actually are. Um, So I think it's quite easy to make a sharp distinction, at least in theory, between thinking and, and some other way of investigating. I think in practice, um, I don't, I, my sense, my own experience, is that it's very hard to make a hard and fast line between thinking and non-discursive investigation. I think there's quite a bit of overlap. And there's no indication, as far as I could tell, in the discourses of the Buddha, that the Buddha was encouraging people to stop thinking, that that was the preferred mode of being. Um, and um, 
So then, the, you know, what, what's the role of thinking? How do we think? And part of that understanding uh, is certainly to understand all the ways which is not useful to think. And there's so many ways that thinking gets in the way. And that's maybe what most of us are aware of. But thinking is a beautiful attribute of the human mind. And it does beautiful things. And it also helps us. It can help us to understand things. And we can ask uh, particular questions. And we can explore. What's a really good question to bring to bear on this topic? And then, uh, what, what, you know, what, what's, what's the best way to uh, be discerning? Dis- uh, being discerning has an aspect of, you know, thinking about things, remembering a little bit what happened, kind of anticipating what might happen, and evaluating what's useful to happen, what's not useful to happen. Um, there's an evaluation process that, that can go on in practice. I, I, I like to emphasize that, par- emphasize that part of mindfulness practice is trial and error. And um, I like to emphasize as part of that is that um, um, it's very hard, it's very hard to be a teacher. You say it's so hard. Some days I say it's so easy, but uh, it's both and, right? It, but today it's so hard because I, no, I, 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 I try so hard to convey the practice. It's what I do with my life. Right? I try my best to figure out how to talk about it and say it, but I just know I can't succeed. All I could do is do these really broad brush strokes and kind of point you in kind of some general direction over there. And then uh, you've got to try it out. And then you find how to do the practice. You find how the instruction, what the instructions mean on your own by applying it and by trial and error, finding out what it means for you. And um, so trial and error involves some evaluation. You know, this worked, this didn't work. But then some of us are neurotic about evaluating our experience. I mean, we're so good at it. And it means, you know, oh, this means that I'm neurotic. This means I'm really great. This means, you know, it's just a disaster, you know, as soon as we start that. And so a lot of American Vipassana teachers almost want to de-emphasize thinking because it gets, for Americans, it gets in our way so much. And so they don't talk about that as part of, you know, what, what you can do. But I think that uh, um, my sense is that there's no sharp line between a non-discursive approach to investigation. We are sensing more carefully the experience and some kind of uh, discursive, analytical, or thoughtful way in which we go forward. One of the principles for uh, using thoughts as part of practice is the use of your thinking as you practice, helping the mind to become stiller. If it's not helping the mind become more silent and more stiller or more concentrated, then probably you're not thinking in a, you know, in a usefully meditative way. And so, but most people, it's hard to find that, so... And most of us think, so, like for me, um, I tend to be fairly um, uh, investigative. It's, I think it's one of my more kind of stronger aspects, perhaps, when, when I do practice. And so there's an element of kind of thinking about things to some degree going on. And I did not need any teachers tell me to think more about things. <laughs> and so, I mean, mostly I, I message I got, don't think, don't think, don't think. And so, I, I you know, I, I mostly didn't. But then the little quiet voice in the back of my mind was going along merrily, um, helping me along in this way. And I'm really glad for that part. But, um, but it, it needs to be de-emphasized. And for some people, it needs to be de-emphasized. Some people, it needs to be emphasized and developed. Um, you know, we don't want meditation to make you, you know, to, you know kind of a dumb, dumb, dumb you down kind of thing, right? <laughs> uh, I think uh, med- mindfulness meditation, you're supposed to bring all your intelligence to the practice. Whatever intelligence you have, you should bring to it. And um, it's not, um, you know, it's not meant just to be something, you know, 
that you only bring part of yourself to. So you bring all your intelligence to the process of learning how to be still. And part of that process is, no, is having the intelligence or the knowledge of, the, of, of when to stop. Whatever, you know. Anyway, is that making sense? Is that, is that helpful? I went on and on without checking in and seeing if I was addressing your concern. I think it is. I mean, I think one of the things that's a difficulty for me is feeling that in some sense that if we start with that first factor of, of mindfulness, that mindfulness is that presence of mind that keeps track of what's going on. Right. And then if we add something new, that is the quality of investigation. Mm. I mean, it seems kind of a funny line to me because when I'm adding investigation, I can feel the energy of Right. But it's kind of hard because I'll be, you know, trying to just keep my present experience and awareness. And then if I start thinking, well, let's see, what, what is it that's dragging me up? Can I notice, you know, what my feelings are, what my body feels like when I notice that I've suddenly slipped away? Yeah. And that seems kind of... Then I'll, you know, I start to think more about well, what's really happening right now, you know, and then the next thing I know, I'm lost in distraction of that. Right. Yeah. Thinking, oh, it was trying to have investigation. Well, once you start the process, investigation can lead itself very easily to, to excessive thinking and being lost in thought. And so it's an art form to learn how to use an investigation that helps us keep us present and nudges us on to get more concentrated and more present. Um, mindfulness is, um, as I've said recently, uh, mindfulness by itself, as a techni- the technical understanding of mindfulness in the Buddhist tradition, uh, mindfulness is actually pretty dumb. It's a dumb capacity of mind. Um, <laughs> all mi- all in, the, in the traditional understanding of, in Buddhism, all mindfulness is, is kind of this simple capacity of the mind to hold something in its inattention. A kind of a presence of mind that we bring to whatever is happening in the moment. Um, so that's all it does. It, uh, uh, when we talk about mindfulness kind of colloquially in America, we often add a lot of other factors to it and make it a little more complicated than the traditional understanding of mindfulness is, where it's kind of a dumb thing. Just You're just there. You're plop. You're right there. You're, you're, you're showing up. You know, that's all you've done. You've shown up. A lot of people can show up. And then, um, as the practice develops, uh, especially if you look at the seven factors of awakening, is the idea is that you want to collect other things together with the mindfulness. And one of the first things we collect is this quality of investigation. And, uh, and the simplest way of doing that is to ask yourself the Vipassana question. And that is, um, what is this? So you've shown up. And then you say, what is this experience? So you're showing up for your breath. And you're there with your breath. And you can do that kind of brute thing. You know, just hang in, stay there with the breath. And then you say, what is this breath? What is this experience like? And then you kind of start looking more carefully. And, and the question of what is this, or let me look more carefully, is using your thought, perhaps, your evaluation. But once you kind of, then, then it kind of you turn your mind to pay more careful attention to what the experience of breathing is like. Or you have an emotion. And you notice the emotion is strong. And then you have the question, what is this experience like? And so then the mind maybe drops back down into a more non-discursive approach, if that's useful. But it was the thinking mind that kind of realized, oh, this is some place to pay more careful attention. Let's look more deeply here. 
Is that helpful? Um, on the same subject, one of the ways that, that um, one teacher taught this was um, in relation of seeing, um, seeing experience in terms of anicca, dukkha, and anatta, and, um, uh, which is something that I've used when I'm trying to investigate. It's like trying to look at something deep enough to, to see what, that it's impermanent or to see that there is, that there is itself. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, there's two, uh, uh, two very general approaches, um, um, maybe around investigation, and you pointed to that to now, and different teachers emphasize different ways, and it's probably you know, both and kind of thing. Uh, but one way is um, to actually be looking for something in particular, and the particular things that are useful for deep vipassana practice is to be looking for that, that aspect of our experience which is universal, and not necessarily just personal to ourselves. And the most universal things we have is that is what's called the three characteristics. That things are either, uh, are in some sense, impermanent, in some sense, uh, unsatisfactory, and in some sense, there's no self there. You can't find a self in that experience. So sometimes, some people, as Inez says, will look for that as their experience. Other teachers will de-emphasize looking for anything in particular. Um, just, just look, just investigate, and see what's there. And part of the reason for not looking for something in particular but rather just look what's there, is that when you start looking for what's in, in particular, the, the, the mind is very, um, can be very uh, uh, um, um, well, it's adjustable, it can manufacture things. And so if you've been told that, oh, experience of impermanence is really what's important, then people will kind of, go, oh, will kind of, kind of tune into it or imagine they're seeing it rather than really seeing it in the way it's meant in Vipassana. And same thing with a lot of other factors, like in uh, certain meditative states that can arise in practice, like a lot, certain kinds of joy and bliss, which are sometimes emphasized in practice. If people learn too much about these things ahead of time, then people are not just allowing it to happen as it happens, but they're kind of like leaning, looking, anticipating, and they're kind of imagining, oh, that's it, I think that's it, yeah, that's it, I think it's it, yeah. You know? <laughs> and, you know, it's not it at all, but, you know... <laughs> And or whatever, you know. So, so there's two whole approaches. And um, the way I was trained in Southeast Asia um, was maybe epitomized by um, the first uh, meditation monastery I, I, I sat in in Thailand. Um, the, mon- the monastery had a um, library of Buddhist books, mostly in Thai. And for some reason, I, was, I went there to the library one day and it wasn't a big room, but it was you know, lined with all these books in Thai and it had no meaning to me because I don't read Thai. And then um, I was shown that the, uh, there were, in fact, some books in English. And, but those books in English were behind the big picture of uh, the Thai royal family, or the king and the queen, I think it was. And, um, and the reason they were behind the picture was the English books were being hidden. <laughs> So the Americans or the or Europeans, Americans, Westerners who came um, there uh, wouldn't find those books and start reading them. Uh, and the idea was that uh, it's fine to read these things after you practice for a long time. And that's the way it was in Burma also. Uh, you were told not to read a lot of things about meditation uh, until after you've gone through a series of practice uh, periods. And then you were told, that's okay, now you can read and find out what happened to you. 
but you're not supposed to find out what's going to happen to you before you do it. So there's different approaches. Yes? Well, sort of along that same line, um, just delusion is so easy. And being a novice, that when I want to investigate there again, I don't know where I'm, when I'm deluding myself that what I'm seeing is all these other things or, or what it really is. Does that make sense? What clues are there to know when when you think you're looking at something discursively when you're actually just slapping all sorts of interpretations onto it that uh-huh. how, well, do, how do you you know, how do you get that clue? How do you get that clue? Well, I think one of the best clues... So, did you hear, all hear the question? So one of the best clues is um, if you're suffering. Uh, the, um, you know, one of the, the Satipatthana Sutta, the main kind of rationale or the point of that traditional practice of mindfulness was to help people suffer less uh, and be free of their suffering. And so is the practice you're doing leading to less suffering? Is it causing suffering as you do it? And um, so, so you can pay attention. So if you're kind of sw- lost and kind of deluded and holding on and wondering what's going on, confused, there's probably some sense of suffering, some tension, some anxiety, some pressure, some stress, something that's in there that would qualify as dukkha, as suffering. And, um, and that can be a great clue. You know, the bumper sticker for Buddhists is, um, uh, I stop for suffering. <laughs> and you know what it means is we stop and pay attention we, 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 we learn from it so did I give you the, my, my Vipassana my Buddhist test I gave some people recently my little test to see how good you are as Buddhists how do you know when suffering is Sacred. What is sacred suffering? That silenced the room. Are you all going to fail my test? So how do you how do you know when suffering is sacred? Yeah. Is it um, when you're not allowed to question it? When you're not allowed to question it, you have to explain a little bit about that. Why would it be sacred when you can't question it? Oh, when, it, when it's just... It's beyond the pale. I mean, oh, the, ask. Just don't ask. Oh, it's so awe-inspiring. Awe, awe, awe it's, it's so monumental and huge. And there's no, it come from some, someone who, who thinks that they're an authority and are not to be questioned? So you can't do anything but about... That leads to suffering, and that's one kind of suffering. That's... But how is that sacred? Because they say it is. Oh, they say it is. Oh. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> now I better not say anything. <laughs> it's good. Thank you for saying it. Thank you. Yes. Right? I like that answer. Yes? Can we have sacred, sacred suffering or leads to a sacred freedom? That's a good answer. Nothing sacred. Nothing is sacred. 
He's a Zen student. <laughs> See, around here, everything's sacred for us. <laughs> and it probably comes to the same. <laughs> if you're trying to understand it, then it's sacred. So the... Um, so those are good answers. Um, the, um, because the idiot word for sacred here I'm using is, is I'm using it kind of a synonym for the word um, for noble. The first noble truth is um, the, tr- the noble truth of suffering. So there's ordinary suffering, which is uh, suffering where you suffer. And then there's noble suffering or sacred suffering, which is the same suffering, could be the same suffering, but we understand how to find the path to liberation in that suffering. We understand how we can bring practice to it. And, uh, and then it's become sacred in a sense. It doesn't mean we look for suffering and try to make it happen, but, but um, when suffering does happen, uh, if you have a sense of how, where the practice can be found in the middle of it, then you found the first noble truth. Is that another way of talking about right view? Yes the right view or right perspective or the right orientation. Yes, Anne? You mentioned a lot of non-discursive Yeah. So, um, if I'm investigating my breath, um, I maybe wouldn't be thinking about what the breath is. I would be feeling it more intimately, more carefully. And so, when I feel the the chest expand, that experience of expansion is not... The thinking is not making that happen. It's happening independent of thinking. And the sensing of that, the the sensory awareness uh, of that is not a thought either, but it's a physical sensation of expansion of pressure, tautness. And, um, and so then I, so, so I, so the investigation of the breath feels that, feels or senses in that non-discursive way, that non-discursive aspect of our experience, the non-discursive way of experiencing things, which is through our senses, uh, is coming into play and, and we become more sensitive. And as we get more concentrated, it isn't just simply an experience of expansion, but it might be a whole series of small little movements of expansions and stretching and tautening, tautness and uh, hardness and tightness and a whole bunch of things happen there as the chest expands. And you see, you don't see like one smooth sensation, but very, very concentrated, you see a lot of minute little sensations that kind of ripple up as you go through it. And you can't think about that so much. You can, you can think about it, sure, but the, the learning about that, it, you don't learn about that through your thinking. You learn about that by feeling it directly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how about like naming that part of the I would say naming, naming is a discursive aspect of the mind. And um, maybe I wouldn't use a discursive, maybe I should be more careful with my language. A discursive I think of as being kind of having a conversation. Um, and discursive thinking is... Um, Often gets in the way of meditation. You have, you have a, you're, 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 you're having a, giving a discourse to yourself. Um, um, 
But there can be much more simple kind of uh, forms of thought that help a further, further leading in meditation that keep you connected. And probably one of the simplest forms of thoughts that actually can be very, very helpful in meditation is mental noting, make a mental note. And that's like using, your, your thought is so simple that it, it's just like one word. It's like, like you know, expansion. As you breathe in, you feel the expansion. expansion. And so you're using a very, very simple uh, part of the mind, to, that, a thinking part of the mind that helps you kind of feel and uh, more carefully, kind of gets you focused and engaged in that part of your, your experience. Um, yes? Yeah, yeah, it seems fine. Yeah. Oh, you see, I'm not supposed to be the judge <laughs> of what is useful and not useful. That's, you know, that's, that's why my job is so easy. I don't have to judge anybody's experience. Uh, I, I can just tell you the broad principle. And the principle is that if it helps you become more attentive and helps you become stiller, uh, more aware of what's going on, then great. And you're the one who's supposed to be the judge of that, not me. Um, yeah. Someone once suggested to me that non-discursive thinking could be viewed as standing in the middle of a train station and watching all the trains coming and going to all these different places without ever getting on one. That's a good one. So, so uh, he's heard the analogy that non-discursive thinking is like standing in the middle of a busy train station where a lot of trains are coming and going in all directions, people are coming in all directions, and just standing there in the middle and not getting on, not getting on any of the trains. Um, um, uh, I haven't heard that one exactly. One I've heard one just is, is similar, though. It's just standing at the edge of the train tracks, and the trains keep coming by. And there's all these interesting, you know, trains go by, but you just watch them go by. But then there's a boxcar that has really interesting things in it, and you jump on. And it takes you ten minutes or two days to realize that you're on the train. And <laughs> so so, so th- thoughts are like the trains going by. So it's possible to be aware of thinking with that part of the mind that doesn't think. We, maybe we can call that the non-discursive part of the mind. So it's possible to, uh, to experience thinking and, and see that you're thinking. And the part that sees or senses or is aware of thinking happening, that is a silent part of the mind. So that's why it's possible to be in, you know, have a lot of thinking going on and still feel, even, even the mind can even be agitated at times, but there's a feeling kind of like there's still point in the middle of it and, um, and all the stuff is happening and we haven't gotten on. Um, one of the ways of understanding this is we don't, um, we certainly don't get attached or cling to what's going on and we don't personalize it. We don't take it as being, this is who I am. One of the ways to get on the train is to say, oh, that train is Gil. But if it's just thoughts, one of the, little exercises that Joseph Goldstein used to teach uh, when you're sitting in a meditation hall is um, imagine that the thoughts you're having in meditation are being projected uh, into your mind from the person sitting behind you. (laughs) 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 And I think he he taught that as a way of helping you kind of disidentify with your thoughts. Don't take them so seriously and it's so important. Um, Before I came down here tonight... um, 
earlier today, based on what the, uh, we had a questions and answer session yesterday on Sunday morning. And there were some questions then about mental noting. And um, I thought, well, maybe it's time to give a talk on mental noting. And then I thought, well, I should do it to Sunday because those are the people who seemed relevant. But now you've asked somebody, uh, would you like a talk on mental noting next Monday? Should I do it both days? How many, how many of you come on Sunday? Or how many wouldn't mind hearing it twice? Or <laughs> well, well, because I, th- I think people on Sunday would like to hear the talk, but it'd be nice to hear a mental noting. So I usually don't like to give the same talk on Monday and Sunday because I don't, I, that's my neurosis. You know, I don't like to repeat myself. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. <laughs> but I could do it. Yeah. All of the instructions in the sutta that you were reading were to monks. Oh, yes. Did the Buddha ever give instructions to non-monks? He did. Um, uh, I don't know a lot about this topic because uh, I haven't gone through carefully through suttas and see exactly you know what he, what is it he taught to to lay people. And I know in the commentary to this discourse, it's clearly explained that take the word monk in this text. This that what it means is means anybody who's sincerely practicing. So 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 if you're sincerely practicing, then you're a monk. So it's not limited to only people who've taken ordination. That's what the commentaries say about this text. Uh, but to answer your question more directly, uh, there are some, I know some places where the Buddha gave very clear instructions to laity. They tended not to be meditation instructions. And there's one uh, discourse uh, called the Sigalaka Sutta that is sometimes called um, the um, uh, Vinaya for the lay people. Vinaya is the Buddhist word for the... Uh, the uh, uh, the, vinaya is the, uh, the monastic vinaya is the rules and regulations, the guidelines for the monastic life. So this one, then, uh, this text provides the guidelines for lay life. And it's been on my mind for some time to uh, talk about it. Uh, but I've been a little bit shy about doing it because I, I couldn't quite, I hadn't put my mind around the text enough to convince myself I can do it in a way that was useful for people or, or it wouldn't put people asleep. But maybe one day. It has tended to be in Asia a big divide between uh, uh, monastics and laity in terms of the practices they do. It hasn't been an absolute divide. Um, and uh, that divide has broke, broke down quite a bit in the 20th century. But still in, South, in Asia, there's still a divide. Um, and that div- uh, uh, one of the primary characteristics of that divide is that it's the monastics who meditate. And the uh, lay people generally don't. They do other forms of uh, spiritual practice. Devotional practices, for example. And so it's a quite a new thing. It's only maybe 60, 70 years old, maybe, the phenomena where meditation is offered uh, quite readily and easily to lay people. I mean, it's, uh, not just in America or in the West, but also in Southeast Asia. It's, it's a whole new phenomena. Probably, probably it's difficult to, to, uh, to, you know, I, I, I kind of put the time on 1940s as a time, a real watershed time for bringing uh, meditation to lay people. And then our teachers or people who study in Asia, um, 
Westerners went to Asia and then directly benefit, benefited from that big uh, change that happened in the 1940s and, um, and were introduced to a meditation practice where it was fine to be due as a lay person. And then no one thinks twice about it. Oh, this is what lay people do, too. Last one, then we should stop. Did you say the goal of the pasna is to be totally in present time? No. And just to... I'm, I've been uh, using the, the book of Power Now as kind of a, of a, of a Bible lately. And I'm trying to get into present time. It's just extraordinarily difficult. And uh, I'm not sure. There is a... He has a follow-up book called Practicing the Power of Now, but still it's not, <laughs> it's, just, it's just, I find it very, almost impossible to do. Uh-huh. I mean, I can do it for 10 seconds in the morning, and then I get distracted. 14 hours later, I remember that I was supposed to be present. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think all of us here in the room understand that one. But he has, he has some really good, uh, he also has some really good arguments for being in present time. And it's, seems like, um, I mean, it's very logical. Uh, yeah, I know, I know people who love this book. I haven't read it. And um, the um, um, before I even heard about this book, I, I had a little bit of sense that the present moment had become the god of American Buddhists. It's kind of like uh, uh, very highly val- uh, valued and very important for American Buddhists that being in the present moment now and as you can't do nothing wrong if you're just in the present moment. Um, the, my sense, my own sense, is that, um, that's why I said no, it's not the goal of Vipassana practice. The present moment, being in the present moment, paying attention to the present moment, is central to the development of Vipassana. Uh, and a lot of the whole Vipassana practice is, a lot of it is focused on learning how to do that. And it's a whole training to learn to do that. It's kind of like the main thing that we teach here, in many ways, is um, helping people, help all of us to kind of learn to be in the present moment. And it is a challenge. Um, the, um, but it's not the goal. the goal. The goal is to be liberated. And it turns out that being in the present moment is one of the best ways to help you become liberated. Once you're liberated, uh, maybe that's not so essential to be in the present moment well, all the time. I get the sense that once you're liberated, liberated you're automatically in present time. I mean, it's, because if you're not in present time, you're always in the future, always in the past, and you get all this mind shatter and all that conditioning and stuff, so naturally our reality is going to be warped. Let's compare notes in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out. So thank you all, and I hope it was useful to do an evening of questions like this. And um, So maybe next week we'll do um, uh, this thing of mental noting, which... Um, if you're already thinking, you, I'm not going to come because he's talking about mental noting, <laughs> you're the one who should come. <laughs> <laughs>